Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, for many students and teachers, the return to the classroom has also meant keeping up with changes to COVID policies in schools. We'll check in with two teachers to hear what this looks like for them. And we look into the Marshall Fire evacuation and why so many were able to get out in time despite shortcomings in the system meant to alert residents. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Most students have been back in classrooms for a little over a month now, but already there have been many changes around mask requirements, testing, and other COVID protocols. In just a bit, we'll check in with two teachers from two different school districts who've been adapting to these changes along with their students. But first, we're going to take a look at how the evacuation went in the massive wildfire that tore through two Boulder County communities at the end of the year. In the immediate aftermath of the Marshall Fire, many survivors were thankful to have escaped, oftentimes with kids and pets. Soon after, people from over a thousand households learned that their homes had been completely destroyed. KUNC's Lee Patterson joins us now. She talked with Lori Peake, a sociologist and the director of the Natural Hazard Center at the University of Colorado Boulder, whose work focuses on vulnerable populations. Hi, Lee. Hey there. So the Marshall Fire erupted on December 30th and very quickly blazed through the communities of Superior and Louisville. You spoke with Lori Peake about what can be learned from the evacuation process that day. Given the number of homes that burned to the ground, why have the number of fatalities and injuries stayed so low? Um, several reasons. Time of day. This fire happened during daylight hours instead of the middle of the night. It was a holiday, so people were home, you know, instead of scrambling to pick up their kids from school, uh, multiple roads in and out of the area. I talked with the Boulder County Sheriff's Office, too, and they echoed much of this. But I think there were some other factors that are really important to bring into the conversation that have to do with sociodemographics. We did have multiple roadways for people to get out of harm's way, another important variable. But then we also have to look at who had access to private automobiles to put on those roadways. People had gas in their tanks, she adds. Many households had two parents, easier to evacuate those kids and pets. Same goes for all the people who have the ability to work from home. That time of day, the time of year, the socio-demographic characteristics of the people who were in harm's way, I think those are some of the key conditions that we really um, are really important to talk about. Lee, we know that Boulder's emergency alert system didn't reach the majority of residents that day. Still, the vast majority evacuated successfully. Why is that? Yeah, so a little bit of background. Boulder County has a newish emergency notification system called Everbridge. Landlines get loaded automatically into this system, but Boulder County residents have to sign up online if they want those alerts to go to their cell phones. Nine alerts were sent out using this system during the Marshall Fire, but I've talked to several people who lost their homes, and most of them were not aware they had to opt in and didn't get any messages. 
But many, many did talk to their neighbors that day. Neighbors calling neighbors, neighbors messaging neighbors, neighbors going around and knocking on neighbors' doors, and how that literally saved lives we don't know yet. And so I think one of the lessons that may be learned from this that we keep learning again and again in disaster is how important social networks are. Well, looking ahead beyond the evacuation, which groups are she most concerned about given her focus on how vulnerable populations experience disasters? Mm. Well, Boulder County is an affluent area with some resources to recover from this disaster, but loss and suffering, of course, is still so widespread and the recovery period will likely be very long, especially for some groups such as elderly people, lower income families. Families with only one parent, uh, families with persons with disabilities in the, the household. These are the populations that oftentimes may struggle during the longer term recovery period. And so that's why we really do need this enhanced support over time for survivors of major disasters like the Marshall Fire. Extensive resources are listed out at bouldercounty.org. The county sheriff's office is working on a system that will allow location-based cell phone notifications that should be in place at some point this year. There's also a facilitated learning analysis, or FLA, in the works. It's a process um, to learn more about the circumstances around the fire, how it behaved, what went wrong. One Louisville official described the purpose of the FLA as, quote, to write the story of the fire. That's KUNC's Lee Patterson. We look forward to more of your reporting on the aftermath of the Marshall Fire. And thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome, Erin. Since students returned to classrooms in early January, there have been many changes to COVID policies in Colorado schools. Some districts have adapted or dropped their mask requirements altogether, as more counties have done so. And with changes to rules around COVID testing, quarantines, and sick time, it can be challenging for parents, teachers, and staff to keep up with the latest. We're talking today with Ivory Jarman, an English language education kindergarten teacher at Samuels Elementary in Denver, and Carrie Ann Mathis. She's a career and technical education teacher at Middle Park High School in Granby. Ivory and Carrie Ann, welcome to, to both of you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I'll start with you, Carrie Ann. Uh, I understand your district, which is East Grand School District 2, made wearing masks optional on January 17th. Prior to that, masks had been mandatory for students and staff. I'm wondering what things have been like in your school since that change. So January 17th, we came in and it was masks optional. It was very glad to see that all the teachers continued to wear their mask. And about 50% of the students decided not to wear a mask as they made it masks optional. It was a little hard for the past two and a half years. We've been enforcing masks. Teachers have been the mask police. Um, kids are getting, you know, if they don't wear their mask, they were getting sent to the office. So the mask, having masks, although they protected us, it was still difficult because you have that relationships with the students and constantly, you know, cover your mask, put your nose, you know, cover your nose. It definitely had a lot of stressors on both teachers, the students, and the administrators. And coming in, our local grocery store, you don't have to wear masks. I think the only place that you had to wear a mask in the county was 
in the hospital. So the community had already dropped the mask mandate. And essentially, it was only a matter of time before the, the board voted to take it also. Right. And I know, Carrie Ann, that there are some specific rules around quarantine that change based on whether someone was wearing a mask or not, or if they're vaccinated. Can you briefly tell us how all of that works? There is a new COVID exposure flowchart, and it talks about was the person, if they were exposed, were they vaccinated? Yes, no. Exposed person and positive were both masks. Is the, Are they symptomatic? You know, and then it's yes or no, quarantine until rules out, no quarantine, 10 days. Are they participating in serial testing? Then they quarantine for five days and wear, wear a mask for five days and trying to track this flow chart. That's not even the people who are exposed. It is a logistical nightmare for the administrators, for teachers. If they're not quarantined, you know, we normally don't get a list of who is quarantined, who's supposed to be wearing a mask for the five days. It's a big kind of guess that logistically there is no way to track the amount of students that should be wearing masks. And then you have privacy issues. So you may not even know that that person has been exposed to COVID and they should be wearing a mask. So at this point at our school, it's based off the honor system. You know, you were told that you should be wearing a mask. You should still be doing it. And just really trying to remove teachers from being the mask police yet for another year. Right. Well, around the holidays, we were hearing a lot about staffing shortages, uh, correlating with high um, COVID case numbers in schools. Are you still seeing that now? In our district, it's it's rural. We don't have as many cases as the cities. So for staffing issues, what I have seen is we did have the community step up and we have a lot of new substitute teachers. I've seen substitute teachers that I've never seen before. Parents are coming in, coaches, you know, the volleyball coach coming in to be a substitute so thankfully in our rural area, we have been able to shift different people to different jobs. I know the principal has come in and she has been a substitute for some of our staff members. So as far as we go, we don't actually have that issue. Um, we closed, the only time that we closed was for a snow day, not for, for staffing issues. So with our district, a lot of people are stepping up. You're still in the morning kind of, do we have the coverage? And then essentially it just works out by first period. Right. Well, Ivory, let me turn to you now. How are the COVID policies in Denver public schools where you are uh, different from what Carrie Ann described, maybe starting with the masks? So um, in Denver public schools, we are still wearing masks and um, that just coincides with our city's mask mandate for indoor um, we are continuing to wear masks um, at all teachers, all students. Um, we definitely, we don't have a lot of pushback, I would say at our school about the masks. Um, students wear them. I know our younger ages, like three and four year olds, it's just hard in general, right? To keep that mask on, but um, we aren't having any issues where, you know, families are fighting us about it or we just, that's what we're doing. We wear our masks. And when, um, you know, we're advised to not do that anymore by the public health order, um, then, you know, we will take that away. But we're just going off of what is mandated right now for us. Right. I'm curious, Are do you feel that, you know, changes in policies are being communicated to staff and parents and teachers? And I definitely think it is in Denver public schools. Um, 
our district does a really good job of, we have a whole area on our website for parents to know, like, if your students have these symptoms, this is what you would do. Um, it gives, you know, next steps, what you can do. Our school nurse has been phenomenal in really being the person to go to with identifying cases and then following up with, you know, does a classroom need to quarantine? Um, do, does the teacher need to quarantine? But I feel like the district as a whole has communicated that really well to families and to students, yeah, and to teachers. And Ivory, have you guys been facing staffing issues um, where you are or high case rates? I know that other schools in our district have had to, you know, go to either remote days or close, but um, at Samuels, we haven't had to do that. Um, like Carrie Ann was saying in the morning, I think it's just, do we have every coverage that we need? Um, our leadership teams, so our senior team leads who are coaches in our building have really stepped up and will cover and substitute. Um, the district is doing a very good job of honoring our teacher contract and at my school at least is um, we are being paid when we do have to cover, do that extra coverage. So we are getting that additional pay for that, which is great. Um, and we've been lucky to have long-term subs who have stayed here and now they're just filling in wherever we need them to, um, as well as substitutes who have been subs here for a while who continue to come back. And I know that's not the same at all schools, but for our school, it's kept us afloat, so that's good. That's the first part of our conversation with Colorado teachers Ivory Jarman and Carrie Ann Mathis. We'll be back after a short break to hear how their schools are handling COVID testing and what's keeping their spirits up as the school year continues. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. We're checking in today with two Colorado teachers as they adapt to this latest stage in the pandemic. Ivory Jarman, an English language education teacher at Samuels Elementary in Denver, and Carrie Ann Mathis, a career and technical education teacher at Middle Park High School in Granby. I'd like to ask you each about uh, testing at your schools. And Ivory, let me just start with you. Is there kind of a regular testing protocol for uh, teachers, staff, and or students? No, we don't have a testing protocol. Um, if students are, if they're going to the nurse's office and maybe they have some of those symptoms, then, you know, we're not saying like, you have to go get a test. It's never mandatory. Um, we do send students home if they're not feeling well. And, you know, we recommend that to families, but then it is their choice whether to get tested or not. Um, because teachers in our district, you have to be vaccinated. So we don't have to do, you know, the weekly or monthly testing anymore because you had, to, you have to be vaccinated. You had to be vaccinated by the beginning of the year or you were let go. <laughs> and Carrie Ann, how, what is, what is this like in your school for testing? So we do have serial testing. It's every Wednesday. It is optional. It is not mandatory. And if you look at the charts, that kind of helps. That's one of the things that they look at. Are they serial testing? It's open for both staff and students. The staff can go in before eight o'clock. And if you haven't gone, they have a list. It's everything's optional. I do know that there are incentives that are given to students. Our district isn't paying it, but the testing people are giving incentive to students who do get tested. 
Um, and then Wednesday morning, it ends up being a, not a mad rush, but figuring out who has tested positive. Is that a teacher? Are they, you know, are they still in their classroom? Are they wearing a mask? Okay, this student tested positive. Who are they sitting around? We have seating charge. Um, are, is the person sitting next to them have a mask on or not have a mask on? So it begins that Wednesday morning a mad rush. I, I know that they try to bring in extra people, but it's, you know, like she talked about just shifting around those individuals. So I know Wednesday mornings, our administrators are going around and that's pretty much all they're doing Wednesday morning. Um, there is also the option if you want to stop serial testing, you can also stop serial testing, but it's one of the things that's on our charts that helps kind of go down. Yes, no, serial testing. The teachers don't get incentives, but I know the kids do. And we do not have a mandatory vaccination. I know that there was a lot of kind of back and forth with our teachers and making it mandated. We are in a rural district, so we have a lot of, we still even have open positions for teaching. And we didn't wanna risk that. We didn't wanna risk making that mandatory and then losing even more staffing and teachers. So they made it optional. Um, for vaccination, and then they added the serial testing to kind of help with that. You would hope that maybe as an incentive for teachers, there could be just coffee and muffins or something. Yeah, get a, get a little donut. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll throw that out there as a suggestion. I, I'm wondering for both of you and Carrie Ann, uh, I'll start with you. With all of these policies, and given that they're under a lot of change, do you feel safe at school? I personally do. Um, I'm vaccinated. I'm boosted. I'm, I get serial tested. Um, I wear an N95. I, I order my own personal ones, but the school is providing N95s if teachers want those. We have, you know, I have my little, I call it my COVID castle. It's my desk and I have shelves. And so, you know, I feel protected in there. I know adding the serial testing really helped a lot of teachers and then making it masks optional. And, and like I said before, if you walk around the school, the majority of all the teachers and the people that are in the classroom are wearing masks. So it's, there's only so much you can do and, you know, you still have to do your job, but by having all these other mitigating um, procedures and issues for me personally, I feel good in the classroom. And Ivory, I'll put that same question to you. Um, do you feel safe at school? Yes, I definitely do. I think Denver Public Schools is providing us with um, masks. They're providing face shields. I mean, you have all of these things that you can protect yourself. And really, when we when we think about it, I can only control what I do. So I can double mask. I can wear one mask. I'm vaccinated, boosted, flu shot. Um, I know our students have really honed in on that. You know, I teach very young children. And when we talk about our masks, it's just, hey, I'm keeping you safe and you're keeping me safe. And it's just a very mutual respect we have for one another. Um, you know, our families are still not allowed in our building, which is sad, but at the same time, we are such a large district and Denver is a large city. So, you know, trying to really keep up on, are you vaccinated, are you not? When we have some of those rules, yes, it changes that overall feel, right, of a school building sometimes, but it also is, you know, keeping our, our COVID case number down in our building. So. Yeah. 
Does it feel to you like we are finally ramping down? And I I realize making any kind of prediction about the pandemic is impossible, but just in terms of how it feels to you um, with the people that you work with and your students. I just, I, I don't think it has anything to do with it ramping down. I think it's becoming normal, which is sad to say, but it is becoming a norm. Um, and so, you know, it's just, we are just doing what we need to do to stay here and to keep learning in person with one another. Um, I am very optimistic that people are getting, you know, shots and doing what they need to do, but also very realistic that it is still out there. Um, I mean, I got COVID in December and I had, I thought I just had a, a cold, very mild. Um, so, I mean, I, I just don't want to say that, you know, yeah, everything's going down because you can still get COVID. I have a one-year-old, so I still have to be very alert for that because she's not vaccinated. And I think until we can provide vaccines to all people, <laughs> um, we can't say, you know, oh, it's going down because we have children who still don't even have the option to be vaccinated. Carrie-Anne, how does it feel where you are in your school and your district? Um, Light at the end of the tunnel? You can look at the, you know, the, you can look at the charts and the, and the lines are going down, but same thing happened with Delta, same thing happened with Omicron. I know a lot of people are guessing, well, what's the next variant? But then if you look at our county, we don't have mask mandates. People aren't wearing masks. We have two ski resorts in the area customers coming, not wearing masks. I think at this point, there are a lot of people that are over it um, wearing masks. I know that we know that it protects ourselves, but anybody that says they love wearing a mask, I don't, I don't believe them. Nobody likes wearing a mask. Everybody wants it to be over. We're exhausted. We're stressed. We've been told what to do for so long, you know, where we can go. And I believe there is an endemic. I don't know when that is happening. Um, I believe that this is something that we're going to have to live with. You know, other countries continuously wear masks. They were wearing masks pre-COVID. And that may be something that people continue to carry on. But I don't, I'm not ready for, to say that it's going down. I'm not ready to say it's going up. It's literally day by day. You know, when we have Wednesday serial testing. You know, it's Wednesday that morning. Okay, how many kids are we going to have out? How many teachers are we going to have out? How many remote lesson plans do I have to do while I'm still teaching kids inside my classroom? I hate the word normalcy, but the chaos is normal right now. Well, let me wrap up by asking each of you, Carrie Ann, I'll start with you. You know, as we get ready to enter the third year of the pandemic, what's bringing you joy? Uh, What is bringing you hope in the classroom right now? What's bringing me joy is skiing on the weekends. <laughs> as far as in the classroom, just seeing those kids come in. I know that teachers talked about seeing kids' faces. And even though I'm wearing a mask, you know, when, I ha- when I'm sitting at my desk and I take that coffee, that sip of coffee, the kids look at me and they can see my face, right? And they're like, that's what she looks like. Because, it, <laughs> because at the grocery store, well, I still wear a mask. I still wear a mask mostly out. So I am looking forward to being able to be less than six feet, you know, like being able to help those students have those small groups, be up close and personal, 
that's what I'm looking forward to. And I know we'll eventually get there, but just kind of taking it day by day. And how about for you, Ivory? I actually had a, I was out yesterday with a sick child (laughs) with my daughter, Um, but I came back this morning and had a former student who put a note, a little Valentine on my table that was like, you know, oh, like you were great. You were such a great teacher. And I hope even though we have masks and all these things, students still feel that connection with us. Um, Even though we can't always see each other's faces, except for when we're outside, that we're still bringing joy to students um, in their learning and that we continue to enjoy being together because I think we can't ever take that for granted anymore. Ivory Jarman is an English language education kindergarten teacher at Samuels Elementary in Denver. Carrie Ann Mathis is a career and technical education teacher at Middle Park High School in Granby. Ivory and Carrie Ann, thank you both so much for talking with us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll get an update on what lawmakers are focusing on at the state capitol, including a look at the bills that have come up already and what's waiting in the wings. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Digital editing is handled by Ashley Jeffcoat and Jackie High. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.